Well, good morning. Um, it's always funny. It's funny, funny to me about church when we have like this front row that's like a splash zone. No one will sit in at all. Jason, thank you. And then the back row that you sit in first, and then we keep adding chairs behind you so you're no longer in the back row. So we see you. We know what you're doing. Um, okay, I want to start with our, a scripture reading for this morning. It's from Luke 22. Verse 14, and it's really fairly familiar, I think. Um, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this part of a meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup of wine. He gave thanks to God for it and said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces, gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Amen. So as Jasmine said, we're... Well, Jasmine said we're about to embark upon a series called, Who Do You Say I Am? This question that Jesus asks us in Matthew 16, asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And the funny thing about that, as Marcy and I were planning out the scope of this, this it's more than a series, it's like an arc of teaching. It goes all the way through the spring, who do you say I am? I would kind of hope that maybe every sermon challenges that question in you. And does this change how you see Jesus? Does this deepen how you see Jesus. So it's kind of an interesting concept that we're going to start a series called Who Do You Say I Am? as if this isn't that. But this is still part of that. And as we were planning it, we kind of realized that, oh, well, we're backing up a little bit and there's this kind of an introduction to the series. We're in it now. We're trying to answer that question now. Who do you say I am? So over the next few months, we'll be exploring that question on a more, more personal level. It's a personal question. It includes vulnerability. Because just, just like it was asked in Matthew 16, the disciples answered, well, you know, some say this, and some say this, and some, no, 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 no. Who do you say I am? What do you say in your heart? Who do you say I am? It's a really important question for us to answer. And what we're gonna try and do over the next little bit is discover the arc of the Old Testament through the New Testament and how God's story is linked together through that scripture. How we see Jesus in the Bible from the beginning and all the way through to the end. And in this, this sermon, I want us to, to look at the covenants of, of God, the promises he sets. Now, here's, here's, a, here's a caveat before we begin. I wrote this, this message, um, and then I realized I'd written a thesis paper, and I had to cut it down, <laughs> reword it, and make it something that's a bit easier to digest on a Sunday morning. So with that in mind, there's... It's more on a teaching side of, the, of a sermon series than you might normally find. So I want you to lean in. I want you to get ready. If you need a cup of coffee, you go get it. It's okay. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna engage. We're going to dive into this thing. But I, that, I'm going to stop with that. So get ready. I want us to look at the idea that God is a God of promises. Now, we're not very good at waiting for promises. We're not very patient as a society, as a people, as a as a as a nation. Um, I looked up a, a survey online, so we know it's 100% accurate, and they, um, they surveyed 2,000 British adults to see how impatient they had become um, in the recent years. 
Now, apparently, it's 16 seconds it took uh, of waiting for a web page to load before people got frustrated. 25 seconds of waiting for a traffic light to change. There's no way in New York City anyone is waiting 25 seconds before they get upset. But apparently in Britain, we can wait 25 seconds. Usually, I think it's less. Uh, it says 22 seconds of people to start cursing at their computers or TVs if a show doesn't start streaming. So 22 seconds there. And then remember, this, was, this is a survey in, in Britain. So this is, this is cute. Um, people felt they described the emotion as anger that they felt if it took more than 28 seconds to boil water so they could make tea. <laughs> that seems accurate. That seems highly accurate. Even then, 2,000 people were surveyed. Almost everyone, 95 plus percent of people, still consider patience as a virtue. So that's interesting. We think it's a virtue, we're not willing to practice it. We get impatient, we want to act, we take things in our own hands, but we consider it a virtue. And as followers of Jesus, there's waiting to be done. We're waiting for the fulfillment of, of God's promise to us, that one day we'll be reunited with him. And that waiting can be hard, and it can be slow and long, and it can be easy to forget where we've come from in a sort of biblical timeline sense. So as we start this long season of answering the question, who do you say I am? We wanted to start in the Old Testament. We wanted to see, uh, look at who Jesus was promised to be. What did they see him as? What was written about him then? And then kind of looking at, well, who's Jesus on earth? And who is he now? And so we're going to start by looking at these promises that God gave to his people, which ends with that promise of Jesus. So I want us to basically back up a little bit, because if you imagine um, a relationship, think of a marriage relationship, and you went on a first date, and you turned up to that first date, and she was in a wedding dress with 200 of her closest friends, all lined up, sitting in chairs, facing an altar, that would be a lot. Because typically, there's a story that leads to that point. And I think we sometimes do that too. We jump right into, this is when I became a Christian. This is, this is when my journey began and we forget to kind of back up a little bit. Just with a, a marriage, a dating relationship, there's a story, there's ups and downs, there's almosts, there's regrets, there's victories, there's learnings. There's what was and what is. If you start watching Star Wars at episode four, that's a great story. Episode four, five, and six, uh, they're great stories. If you watch them from the beginning, they're great stories. There's other episodes before that that help with context of the later ones. Now, it gets weird in those first stories for sure. So don't get me wrong, it gets a little bit odd. And we'll find that in the Old Testament too. But it helps with the context of where we've been. So it's a helpful place to start. There's five covenants that I want us to dive into this morning. One with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and in the new covenant of Jesus. So here we go. For our purposes this morning, these covenants are the ones explicitly described as, as divine covenants. They include an oath, they include a symbol, and they're built on, on this, this foundation that, that God planned human salvation from the beginning of the world. Okay. And then number two, there was a relationship that God had with Adam that had mutual obligations. They both had to do something. So we'll assume that too. And then thirdly, that God's relationship with, with, with us, with people, with humanity, has one goal, to redeem them back to him. So those are the assumptions that we'll make as we begin this, this work. The first covenant with Noah is established 
in the days of Noah, and it affirms this commitment to creation after the flood. So it's confirming those things. Its first mention, it just talks about the preservation of Noah and his, and his family in the ark in Genesis 6. It says, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, this is Noah, your wife and your son's wives with you. It reaffirms God's original plan that was put on hold because of this, this judgment. And then a universal covenant was established after the rain stopped. A promise that a disruption of this natural order wouldn't happen again. This would not be repeated. Genesis 8, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. The natural order will not be interrupted again. That's God's promise. There's this emphasis on a value of human life in particular. The primary reason of this covenant is to preserve life on earth without God's interruption, as was in the flood. It implies that this redemption goal that God has will ultimately include all creation. And the covenant with Noah had a sign, a promise to all humanity that this would never happen again. That rainbow is a symbol, a reminder of a merciful covenant promise. So that's covenant number one. The second covenant with Abraham. God's covenants with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are recorded in Genesis again, in Genesis 12. And God promises to bless Abraham in two ways. One, that he'd become a great nation and have a great name. And second, that through him, God would mediate blessings to all people. And these promises are sealed by a covenant in Genesis 15. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, he was called then, that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. And then in chapter 17, he speaks of an international and, and sort of everlasting dimension of that promise. This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing, my, changing your name. It will no longer be Abraham. Instead, you'll be called Abraham, for you'll be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant that I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. It formally confirms God's promise to make Abraham into a great nation and how God will work out in his goal of creation in Abraham's offspring and in his descendants, Israel. This, however, is still just the first stage of God's unfolding plan. The second is how the great nation descending from Abraham will provide blessings to all people. We start small with one, it expands to all people. Now, we probably should only have to hear God's promises once, but we are impatient and we get bored and we forget. So even though God is trustworthy, even though we're impatient, we don't believe his promises. That's our fault. That's not his. He is gracious. He is, he is patient. So he gives the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He turns it into this covenant we just mentioned in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 17, he doubles down again because we forget too much. And he, he adds in this new element, a covenant sign, and that was of circumcision. 
And that's in Acts, it's referred to as the covenant of circumcision. And it wasn't just Abraham's descendants by birth, not just his own children, but any person, any man belonging to the covenant community who bore the sign of it. The sign of circumcision sealed the covenant. It didn't create it, it sealed it. It wasn't Abraham's obedience in being circumcised that persuaded God to make the promise. The sign sealed what was given. And that's really important. Paul teaches in Romans that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Just as a wedding ring is a symbol, a seal of a promise made. It's a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses. Now, to give us some context, because we're going to get lost. We have Abraham, who marries Sarah. They have a son, Isaac. He marries Rebecca. They have a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob marries Rachel. One of their sons is Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoats and all those things. After he dies, the new pharaoh of the land, the new pharaoh in Egypt, doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't know the story, hasn't watched the movie, doesn't know what's going on. So... He enslaves all the Israelites out of fear for their number. That's what happens. This is where we are in kind of biblical timeline. There's 400 years of that, which is prophesied to Abraham, but 400 years of that. And after that, after that the, the covenant God makes with Moses is on the way to the promised land. They, they walk out of Egypt. That, the whole thing happens. They sing the song. Mariah Carey's there. It's beautiful. And at Sinai, God makes a new promise with Moses. It renews the one he'd made with Abraham. And he gives them the the Ten Commandments as a seal of that promise, the rules by which they should live. Now, here's where you can get, we can get a little bit confused and think that the the Abraham's, uh, the descendants of the Israelites need to do this in order to inherit the land. And that's not the case. It's more about how they conduct themselves within the land because they're God's chosen people. So in order to be God's treasured possession or, or kingdom of priests or holy nation, these are all descriptions from the Bible, Israel must keep God's covenant by submitting to its requirements, which included and were built upon the Ten Commandments as a sign and a seal of that covenant. By adhering to those guidelines given at Sinai, Israel would be different from other nations. They'd reflect God's wisdom and greatness to surrounding people. They would be his witnesses to the watching world. In Deuteronomy, it says, Obey them completely. You will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they'll exclaim, how wise, how prudent are the people of this great nation. So Abraham's descendants would not just follow in his footsteps, but they'll facilitate the fulfillment of God's promise in the promised land. Israel, like Abraham, had to walk before God and be blameless, an echo of that thing in Genesis 17. Failing to do so would undermine the entire purpose of Israel's existence. They just did whatever they wanted under the idea they have this promise. What's the point of being God's nation? What's the point of being the one set apart? So when the nation gets bored, because Moses is stuck up on the mountain talking to, talking to God, they melt down all their earrings. They turn it into a golden calf. They find something else to worship because they are impatient. They get bored. They get restless. They forget who they are and who they're challenged to be. 
Which is why that incident is so graphically important and shows the, the detriment of what they, were, what they were playing with. After that, God reestablishes that covenant. But it was an act of grace rather than one of judgment. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Lavish, unfailing love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And then the, at the end of the incident, God reissues the covenant. He says, listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I'll perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power that I will display for you. But listen carefully to everything I command you today, and I will go ahead of you. Israel's responsibility has not changed. They're still, they're still to reflect God's holiness. They're still to be holy because God is holy. Israel will continue to serve God as witnesses to this watching world. God's ultimate objective is to bless all nations, remember, all nations through Abraham. It's people that mess up the covenant. So what the covenant with Moses did was provide a means by which the relationship between God and Israel could be maintained by sacrificial worship, particularly on the Day of Atonement. They would be able to ritually atone for their sin and symbolically express God's forgiveness. Just as the covenant with Noah guaranteed preservation of human life on earth, the one with Moses guarantees preservation of Israel in the land. So the next stage of God's promise, God's fulfilling promise, is establishing the royal line through which Abraham's ultimate descendant and covenant would come. So Noah showed this importance of life, human life. The promise with Abraham started to include all offspring. It started getting bigger. The inheritance is there. And then with Moses, the idea of reconciliation, of being set apart, of being restored back to God. And after Mount Sinai, the next major development in terms of covenants come with Nathan's word to David. And David intends to build a temple for God as a sign of the covenant he receives. And God promises to build a great name for David. This covenant with David continues the work of covenants with, with Moses and Abraham, etc. The plans for David and Israel are clearly intertwined. It's, this, it's the same story. God promises both a great name. He promises more a great name. Abraham, a great name. Moses, a great name. David, a great name. They'll conquer their enemies in the future. They all have special divine human relationships. There's a special line of descendants that will continue their name. The descendants of, of all of them must adhere to God's laws. And the covenant with David gets more precise. We start with one person. We start with Noah and a family. It gets bigger. It gets bigger. And now it's getting more specific. It's, getting, it's, it's painting a clearer picture of what we're to expect. It's a promised descendant who will provide international blessing, a royal descendant of Abraham through David. And this is what's known as the new covenant. People being people persistently fail to live according to God's covenant requirements, leading to inevitable disaster. But God's plan continues through a new covenant that would be continuous with those of the past. It's only mentioned as a new covenant actually once in the Old Testament, but it is talked about in, in various places. Um, and it's an everlasting covenant linked very closely with, with a servant figure. It's inclusive, incorporates everyone. But it's exclusive in that it's confined to those who will hold fast 
to its obligations. It'll hold fast to that relationship piece. In the Old Testament, we see this anticipation of a change taking place. Something new is happening. Something different is happening. In Jeremiah, it talks of internalizing scripture, making it our own. In Ezekiel, it speaks of like a spiritual surgery, a radical transformation, an inner renewal that will result in a divine human relationship. Just as Noah, just as Abraham, just as Moses, just as David had, relationships are at the heart of God's promises. The new covenant is completed through Jesus' death on the cross. At the Last Supper, we read at the beginning, Jesus alludes of the forgiveness of sins, and the new covenant is sealed by his blood. That's linked to the establishment of that old covenant. Forgiveness of sins is only fully attainable under this new covenant through Jesus' sacrifice. Because Jesus provides this permanent, perfect, heavenly priesthood. This eternal redemption, an eternal inheritance secured and sealed through the blood of Jesus expands the promise of salvation beyond, beyond the Jews, beyond Israel, to all who have faith in Jesus from all the nations of the earth. And the new physical signs of those covenants, the water of baptism that begins that new life of, of faith in Christ, the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper to remind us again and again as we continue that life of faith until the day we die. The old and the new covenants are not to be seen as something like bad and something good, more something good and temporary and something better because it's eternal. And the best is still yet to come when God's covenant promise for both Israel and the nations come to fruition. The ultimate expression of God's creative and redemptive goal awaits fulfillment in, in, in that new creation the promise of John's vision of heaven in Revelation. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And only then, will the hope expressed in all these covenants be fully experienced? Revelation 21, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will reign forever and ever. As we wait on God's promises, we live under a new covenant of forgiveness through grace. And just as Israel had a responsibility, we have one too, to acknowledge that gift, to reflect God's holiness, to be holy because he, the Lord, is holy. We are called into a divine human relationship. We're called to be set apart for his kingdom work and we'll make mistakes and we'll fall short and Jesus will call us into relationship with him again and again. He draws us in and he sends us out. In John 21, chapter 21 in the Gospel of John, Jesus has died, the disciples are lost, they're confused, and then this scene presents itself. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He calls out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. 
So he says, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for his strip for work, jumped into the water, headed to shore. The others stayed in the boat, pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about 100 yards away. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net ashore. There was 153 large fish and the net had not torn. Now, come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This is the third time he'd appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. Picture the scene. A lot has happened. They've failed him in so many ways. They've hidden. They were scared. They denied him. What does Jesus do? Fixes the relationship. Fixes the human and divine relationship. The core, the white hot center of the covenants is a relationship between God and the created us, his people. And then after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. There's work to be done. Then he repeats the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And then a third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt at this point that Jesus asked the question a third time. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He fixes that relationship. He spoke directly to Peter's mistake of denying him three times by asking him to respond three times. He speaks to our relationship. He speaks to the heart of what we need, and he sends us out to do his work. God has a plan for each of you, an intentional, wonderful plan. It begins with a promise, and it's completed through relationship with him. Just as there's a history before a wedding, and there's a journey afterward. The wedding is a sealing of that promise. If we just sit in that memory, if we don't grow and change and explore the, and, and work hard, we'll miss out on some greatness that God has in store. It begins with the promise and it's completed through relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faith of those that went before, the faith that we get to stand on the shoulders that we stand on, the legacy we continue. We thank you that you're at the beginning and you'll be at the end. We pray you continue to help us to lean into relationship with you so we can do your work and your will. Amen.